0: Hello.
1: Yay, it works.
0: And we're recording. How are you? Are you sick?
1: (laughs) No, I'm not. I don't feel great. I haven't felt great all week, and I honestly think it's spring break.
0: Oh, you're on spring break.
1: Yeah, I'm on spring break this week, which is basically almost over now. And I feel like my body actively revolts when I go against my typical routine.
0: Yeah, you need hand grenades to juggle or to feel normal.
1: No, exactly. Exactly. I need to be places all the time. And it's like howling windy today, which just makes me want to wrap up in this blanket, even though I'm not actually that cold. <laughs> I just like, it's the physical comfort of like wrapping myself right now rather than the heat.
0: I feel you. I'm a little frazzled. At the moment, because I've had so much going on, but having been on spring break last week, I realized that I complain a lot about being super active, but I tend to thrive when I have a million things going on. It makes me feel like I'm doing things.
1: (laughs) That's so true. It's so true. You want to know the crazy thing, Chris? What's that? Uh, We will actually see each other in person next week.
0: Oh, I know. I'm so excited.
1: <laughs> Although by the time this interview goes up, I think we'll be in summer break.
0: Yeah, probably. yeah. So, you know, we, we've talked about this offline. We've toyed with the idea of increasing to a weekly schedules. So these, these go up more often. You know, hopefully in the near future that may happen. It, it always depends on resources and, and audience interest. You know, one of the things that would be great is if people would let us know if they would like more podcasts. They can do that by going on iTunes or their podcast service of choice. And I'm getting with the program rating us. There
1: we go. Share us
0: giving feedback, share us, let us know because we have a long, long list of people we'd love to interview who are our colleagues. And I assume our listeners have suggested to us and we've interviewed a lot of them. And we have so many interviews in the can that on a, on a, on every other week's schedule, they end up being kind of dated by the time they come out. So yeah,
1: are backlogged. And then also tweet us and let us know. Uh, that might be actually a better way for us to get feedback more instantly.
0: you know, one of the things I wanted to mention here before we get started with our interview today, we're going to be talking to Katie Lee from Katie. University U. of U. Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Who is a grad student. One of the things that came up, we were recently asked by the Society for Applied Anthropology to write a piece about the podcast for their journal Practicing Anthropology, and one of the things that we noted in that piece was the tremendous response, anecdotally in some cases... um, and in terms of listens, like I'm proud to say that when I looked at the metrics on SoundCloud, we have over seven thousand listens in all of our episodes combined. That's pretty cool.
1: And just from SoundCloud, just uh, from SoundCloud, we do probably not the most popular platform, I would guess. Yeah, I have so.
0: no idea. It's just the one where we host it, so I have I have really no idea. But one of our goals here, we're not journalists, we're not asking people gotcha questions. <laughs> We're we inter I know.
1: <laughs> we should start putting one gotcha question in each interview.
0: What's the p-value? What's your sample size?
1: <laughs>
0: right? We interview folks and we give them an opportunity to share their research and their academic progress or history or story nice. for a wider audience that otherwise wouldn't hear it to normalize all of our varied experiences and to summarize their research in a way that's easy to understand for anyone who would listen. So your mom can listen to this podcast and share it with her friends and your father with his friends and your brother and sister etc your dog can understand what it is you what a do. Question, that one. Okay maybe not. <laughs> But your dog will love you anyway, even if it doesn't understand. And so we do this so that we can increase the visibility of the various endeavors that we're all engaged in and at all levels.
1: At all levels. So I think there's the visibility of it, but also the applicability. When you talk about sharing it with friends and family and people outside of the field, Realizing what we do has everyday implications, which is usually not the most obvious thing with anthropology. So I think that's another one of the really important parts of this podcast.
0: So what are we going to talk to Katie about, speaking of which, then?
1: We're going to talk to her about, I think, a lot of things. <laughs> uh, when we ask Katie to send us some stuff about, you know, what she would like us to talk about, it's going to range from her rural women in Poland... Um, or women from rural Poland might be the better way to put it. Uh, I know you're interested in her dog genetics thing that she's going to be talking about.
0: Well, I uh, was interested and, in the fact that she did some dog genetics stuff, but I don't. It was on her resume.
1: It wasn't, but that's the other thing that I think is going to be a really great thing to talk to her about is her journey to anthropology because she's one of those who didn't like initially start out as somebody you know, as a young kid wanting to be an anthropologist, she's had a much more winding path to get to where she is today. And I think that's going to be a great story to share.
0: Okay. Well, I was, I noted, so they they collected information on energetic expenditure among these women in rural Poland using Fitbits, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a consumer grade product that everyone has access to now. And one of the things I was curious about, because we tried this a few years ago when I had a student who wanted to measure why incoming freshmen, this this thing called the freshman fifteen happens. Mm-hmm. Like, what was there a change in activity level? Was there a change in diet? And we had looked at. I love getting consumer grade products and being able to use, to like integrate them because they're easy field devices. You can get a bunch of them for a relatively low price. But the problem with Fitbit is they weren't as reliable as some of the other consumer grade devices, and we were getting misfit shines. And I'm sort of curious. Yeah. why she chose fitbits like what what sort of generalizability
1: and it's one afford. of those things that like fitbit doesn't give you just raw data it gives you some sort of manipulated output that makes it user friendly for someone who doesn't necessarily have experience looking at activity counts or heart rates and things like that so yeah it's one of those balances between it's cheap and easy to implement in the field but then on the back end actually analyzing the data and looking at what the outputs are, that's where things get a little bit more difficult, I would say, at least when it comes to a good, rigorous assessment.
0: The other thing I'm curious about that we'll have to ask her about, you and I were talking a little bit about this online, is why go to Poland for this? Like, understand-
1: yeah, it'll be fun. I, I mean, I, I believe her advisor, Kate Clancy, has initially started work in Poland, so that might be where it comes from. But uh, I'm sure Katie will tell us the full story.
0: And then and then, they've done a lot of re- – the two of them, in conjunction with others, they, they come out of this group of work looking at – I think it started with sexual harassment in field research. Is this part of that study? I think I read this 2017 paper when I was doing my family in the field research where they looked at astrophysics.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm super curious how that became like – This is the subset within science we're going to look at. So I wonder how that came about, too. So that'll be a fun thing to hear about.
0: And so what they found, just for those who have no idea what we're talking about, and we'll (laughs) we'll talk more about this in just a second, gender and racial disparities, double jeopardy. Like, it's worse for women in this science and even worse for women of color. So the double jeopardy of that.
1: I believe the, uh, the actual title is Double Jeopardy in Astronomy and Planetary Science. Women of Color Face Greater Risks of Gendered and Racial Harassment.
0: So also we are in the same paradigm of sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should bring up yeah. before we go down too many.
1: Yeah, she's probably wondering what in the world we're doing.
2: Hi, Katie. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hey, welcome to the show, Katie. How are you? Good. I am glad to be here. So, Katie, you have a really
1: interesting and I would say non traditional path to a PhD in anthropology where you are today. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through how kind of your career and what led you to where you are.
2: <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I started out actually as an engineering student. Um, I got my undergrad degree in biomedical engineering, where I studied biomechanics and bone is what I was interested in. And I did some three D model construction as my senior thesis um, that I was supposed to do biomechanical modeling on, but that didn't really work out because Katrina happened, and that really cut into my time. <laughs> yeah, that was my senior year of undergrad. Was Katrina, and I was at Tulane, so you know, took a semester off of my. Thesis my senior year, but it was still interesting, and I learned a lot about like constructing models from cross sectional images and stuff, which is, you know, really important for a lot of anthro studies still. Yeah. So I didn't even know what anthropology was as an undergrad because I went in on an engineering scholarship. I was going to do engineering, but when I graduated, 2006 was not a great time for employment. People wanted a master's for people to get entry level jobs. So I took a job with the Department of Defense in a program that essentially was designed to teach engineers about project management. So I got my master's in business. And then I worked at Natick Soldier Center, where they do a ton of uh, physiology research, um, really, really cool physiology research. And I worked for the Center for Military Biomechanics for a little bit, and then the biophysics and biomedical modeling group at U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. So a lot of stuff with understanding physiology and extreme conditions. The uh, DOD toys, man, they don't get better than that. Right. And I knew I wanted to get an advanced degree. Eventually, I just didn't know what in. So I looked at like kinesiology and public health and exercise physiology. And eventually, I just sort of was like, okay, as cool as the stuff is here, I don't want to be here forever. And so I quit that job (laughs) Um, without having another job lined up, which sometimes I look back at my secure job with good like insurance, and a decent income. (laughs) I'm like, what was I thinking?
0: (laughs) Darn 20s?
2: (laughs) Exactly. So I left that job, and I moved to San Antonio because my spouse got cool job opportunity down there. And I was pretty sure I could get hired somewhere because there's so much um, military and medical stuff down there. But I ended up getting a job working with Dr. Liz Hare, who does quantitative genetics and selective breeding work. So I learned a fair amount from her just on like broadly stuff I'd never thought about before.
0: Is this the dog genetics lab?
2: Yeah. What was the goal of that lab? Like what were they working on with dog genetics? They were working with the TSA. It was on a TSA contract to improve their selective breeding program for their explosives detection dogs.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
2: So how long were you there? I was there for... Two and a half or three years, I think. How did you go from dog genetics to anthropology? Liz Hare was super nice about me being flexible with my schedule, and I had thought I might want to go to medical school. Hmm. But I didn't have all of the prereqs you needed to get into medical school because I hadn't taken English when I was (laughs) in college. I paid (laughs) out of English. Class <laughs>
0: 101. that's the weirdest i've never heard anyone who couldn't get into med school because of that. It's usually like organic chemistry
2: <laughs> so i went to utsa to take english and they have like mandatory fees like all universities and they don't prorate them for the number of credit hours you take hmm. so i was like all right i'll take another class so i get all of my fees worth i don't know i was hmm. being thrifty <laughs> And I took anthropology because by this point I had worked with people who had majored in anthropology. I had friends who had gotten their master's in anthropology, things like that. And I was like, well, if all these people I like majored in this, maybe I'll try it. So I took ANTH 101 at UTSA and the part about bioanth and biocultural approaches um, just really clicked for me in terms of the things that I thought were interesting. Because I didn't want to do engineering, like how to measure things more precisely or better or make the devices more affordable to manufacture that we use to measure physiology, which are sort of the engineering problems.
0: Who can we Um, credit with inspiring you?
2: I don't remember her name because she was a grad student teaching it. And it's been like almost a decade now.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you, awesome (laughs) grad student. Somewhere.
2: She was an archaeologist, so when I went to her office hours, she be like, tell me more about this bio And She was like, I can't tell you that much more than what I did in class.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I really liked anthropology. And the next semester, I took two classes, and I actually applied to grad school that semester. But I didn't get in anywhere because I didn't realize how anthro is different from engineering when you apply to grad school, where you contact a professor, you see if they're looking for people, things like that then I took two more classes the next semester and applied again the next round.
0: So you you took a few classes. This interests me because, you know, as a grad director, someone advising students, a lot of times students do apply without ever contacting anyone. And when they're coming out of ANTHRO programs, I'm always like, didn't someone tell you you should reach out to someone? Like, how did you figure it out?
2: I emailed a couple of the People at programs that rejected me the first time I applied, and I said, "You know, I just want to know, you know, why." Essentially, mm-hmm. and some of them said, "You know, you don't have enough background in anthropology for us to really want you in a anthro program," which is why I kept taking more classes. Mm-hmm. Other people said basically that they didn't have a slot; they weren't accepting students. And I followed Kate on Twitter hey, because, Twitter. yeah, yay, Twitter!
0: Like just quickly interrupt because you're really active on Twitter, right? And Kate's really active on Twitter. And one of my questions had been, because I see like whole departments not active at all. I'm one of the few people who's very active in my department. Are you active on Twitter? Because she is, but it sounds like that's one of the ways that you met.
2: Yeah. I was active on Twitter primarily because coming out of engineering and I was looking for a while at possibly doing contract analysis work or contract data wrangling for people.
1: So you had been following Kate on Twitter for a while then? Yeah. Just decided to contact her about grad school or? No,
2: she tweeted that she was recruiting grad students. So (laughs) I, and uh, she was interested in talking to me. So then I applied in the fall. Okay. Um, And I applied to other places, but I was really interested in coming here to work with Kate because she'd been really vocal about things like work-life balance um, she was in the recruiting stage for the SAFE study when I was looking to apply. So I knew that she cared about that area, which again, coming out of the engineering and tech stuff that I'd been a little active in mattered to me. And yeah, so I applied. I was accepted. The department here is really good about, at University of Illinois, about funding all grad students. So you're not competing for funding within the department. hmm We have a strong grad union here, which was important to me.
0: Since you mentioned it, let's jump ahead a little bit and talk about a little bit of the research, and I'm actually going to start with the life career balance stuff. I was sort of wondering about that. You sort of opened the door for that. So Kate Clancy is one of the authors on the SAFE-13 study, which was a study with Katie Hine, Robin Nelson, Julianne Rutherford, where they looked at sexual harassment in a variety of fields, they they focused primarily in that first paper on anthropology, and then Robin followed up with as a lead author on a paper in American Anthropologist. The first one was in Plus One, and then the paper that you're on was one that came out a little bit later in Journal of Geophysical Research: Planets, and it's called. Double Jeopardy in Astronomy and Planetary Science, Women of Color Face Greater Risks of Gendered and Racial Harassment. And this is a paper, I don't know if we ended up citing it, but we used it when I did a study on on family dynamics and anthropology. And so I'm curious, I think both of us are curious, one, sort of how you got involved in this and what the objective was, but why astronomy and planetary science?
2: So I was brought into this study or into this project after the data had been collected, I think they originally had somebody else who was going to do more of the analysis side of it, and that person ended up not having the time or the bandwidth or something. Um, so I was brought in before they looked at the data, they'd collected the data. So it's with astronomy and planetary science because uh, Dr. Christina Ritchie, who is one of the authors and Erica Rogers are both astronomers or planetary scientists, and they had petitioned or worked with their professional society to fund research on the experiences in their discipline, which is now becoming a lot more common for at least the larger orgs to do. So they were interested in the experiences of women specifically. In So that's why it's that subgroup, and it's a pretty big group of people because when you think it's like basically everybody who could work for NASA or NOAA Mm. falls within like Mm. um, this group of people yeah so we sort of talked about the goals of at least that first paper and it was the biggest thing that pulled out was just how horrible it was Mm. generally for a lot of people in the field like most workplaces had lots of things that coming from other workplace experiences are just not appropriate behavior in a workplace, which is why there's a lot of work to be done training people on how to treat your coworkers in a responsible, respectful manner.
0: Did anything jump out at you in that regard? So it's double jeopardy, meaning women of color face the worst, as you're saying, things you should not be doing to people in a workplace.
2: Right. Yeah. So that, it's not a surprise and it's never been a surprise. And one of the things that I've heard from people, specifically women of color, is essentially, we've been saying this forever and nobody listened. And now you wrote a paper and suddenly people are listening to you when they wouldn't listen to us. And that is a huge problem. And it's something that we tried to be very cognizant of because we're all white ladies who authored that paper. You know, we could talk about positionality in the very anthro sense, but one of the problems in the field broadly is that there just aren't many women of color mm. and they're treated horribly, which is probably related to why there aren't that many women of color. Yes. Um, so we really tried to be cognizant in what we were citing and who we were referencing to really think about the politics involved with writing about uh, the experiences of a group of which we are not part.
1: Are there more plans to move this along in different areas of science
2: or still working within the astronomy and planetary sciences? We are in the process of finishing a second manuscript that is looking more at experiences of people who identify as LBGT+. Mm. in the field. I actually just got a draft back yesterday. So that's another group. Again, lots of people have been saying it for a very long time. And for some reason, having quantitative results Mm -hmm. speaks more to people about it being a problem than just listening to people who've been saying for years and years and years that it's a problem. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there's data to support what people actually already know. And Mm -hmm. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. Sometimes the most easily publicized data, what resonates with people the most is confirmation. There's a confirmation bias, Mm -hmm. but in this case, it's a bias in terms of one that supports something that we want to change, right? So pieces like this get picked up and they support and validate what we're already saying.
1: And it becomes so much harder to deny it. Yeah, which is what makes that work so important. And of course, like you said, a really difficult line to walk because you don't necessarily represent the groups with whom you're working. So that's interesting. But how about we switch over to your own work and tell us about rural Poland, because this is your dissertation work, correct? Mm -hmm. Take us through how it kind of got started, what your questions are,
2: what the field site is like all of that good stuff. All right. So, this goes back to the fact that I am really interested in bone. Like bone biomechanics, bone metabolism. I just think bone is super cool. And I found the Polish population was very nice to answer because it's these questions because they're not really constrained. They're not hungry. So when you look at populations that have constraint, I didn't want to accidentally measure malnutrition. So they're not energy deplete. Right. Not necessarily energy replete like a, you know, Western U.S. population. Right. And Kate Clancy did her dissertation work at this field site working with Grzina And she's at Jagiellonian University in Krakow. And she's done a lot with the spectrum of ovarian function and thinking about hormones across the lifespan and cancer risk and stuff like that. When Kate was recruiting students, she sort of listed out the types of projects that she had ongoing. And for me, the Polish population was really a cool opportunity to look at physical activity and hormones and bone hopefully together in some way, which is what my dissertation is doing. Um, So far, I've only published a little bit on the physical activity in this population, but we're just swimming in data over here. (laughs) That's a good place to be. Yeah, so the area we're in in Poland is, it's in the mountains, but it's more like Appalachian style mountains, so more rolling hills instead of like big craggy rocks or anything. So, a lot of the people in the area still have really large gardens or they farm, and most of the farming is still done pretty manually because Mm -hmm. the hills keep you from being able to bring in big machinery. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So, people still do things like pick potatoes by hand in their family garden. So, it gives us a unique place to look at physical activity in a population that's more physically active than a lot of US people. Looking at physical activity in a population that has enough food. Is really important in understanding like sort of what is normal variation in a lot of ways. Their field season that Grishina's group does is in the summer which is nice for me because I don't like the cold <laughs> and it's sort of during the harvest season so when people are doing a lot more of the hard garden work for the year. So then make the connection
1: of maybe some of the variables you're looking at to link up this physical activity with bone and hormones. What's the big question here?
2: Right, so a lot of people who are familiar with women's health physiology research are familiar with the idea of the female athlete triad, where when you have not enough nutritional resources, you disrupt both the skeletal system and bone maintenance. So you end up with people who are have osteoporosis or osteopenia during their young, healthy, active time period and also suppression of the menstrual cycle. So you'll get people who don't have a normal period, either oligomenorrheic where you sort of skip some periods or the duration is really variable or completely amenorrheic where you don't have any menstrual cycles for, depending on the definition, six or 12 plus months. Mm -hmm. And these are related to, theoretically, the ability of your body to invest both in maintaining itself and in reproduction and thinking about the trade-offs between the two. And so I was interested, especially because bone itself responds to estrogen, but it also responds to biomechanical demands. So thinking about how you think about physical activity is really important because there's the energetic component of physical activity, but there's also the biomechanical Mm -hmm. And looking at a lot of literature of Poland in terms of public health literature, they have very high bone density relative to a lot of other European populations, which might be related to the fact that they are still largely doing a lot more subsistence physical activity. So it's not super intense like marathon runners or something like that, where you're really intensely active and then, at least in the U.S., like, you go home and then you sit down, or you go to the office and you sit down. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> familiar. That's sort of what I'm interested in. The female athlete triad and that whole body of literature definitely informs my work in terms of thinking about the estrogen, physical activity, bone operating together. But then I've also gotten really interested in thinking about physical activity itself, because I think there are a lot of assumptions that sort of get built into a lot of the measures of physical activity. So the paper that I recently published in AJHB was looking at just the physical activity of the Polish women that I work with, and they are active for a large portion of the day, like six plus hours of activity, but most of it's not super intense.
0: And this is the one you sent us, physical activity in women of reproductive age in a transitioning rural Polish population? Yes. (laughs)
2: Yes. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a catchy title.
0: <laughs> well, you know, it says what it needs to say. So, I, this paper really interests me. So, you use the Fitbit to collect this, yeah? Yeah. One of the questions I had that's not on here, but Karen and I were talking about this because I had some students interested in collecting physical activity several years ago, and we were looking at some of these consumer grade methods because they're cheap. Yep. and um, people know how to use them. They're And they're attractive. That's one of the issues with some of these things is people don't wear clunky junk around all the time, right? But what I read at the time was that Fitbit was less reliable. And I'm curious as to just sort of practically, as a methodological question, how this worked out for you.
2: So for me, because I wasn't interested in Fitbit's estimates of caloric expenditure, which is a much more difficult thing to measure, especially if you're not looking at expenditure in a climate-controlled environment. But I was interested in essentially the number of steps women were taking during the day, the distribution of the steps, and how many steps in a given time period, instead of relying on it for the, like I said, caloric expenditure.
1: You were kind of looking at intensity, if I remember.
2: Yeah. And for that, there's some literature on the Fitbit that looks at, essentially, it is pretty valid for step counts. It works very well as essentially a glorified pedometer that will let you download the data in discrete increments. So I thought that Fitbit worked really well, as you pointed out. It was affordable. There's nobody at my university here that already had the ActiCal or ActiGraph or any of the more traditional validated research-grade equipment, and the cost was just prohibitive for even trying to do a pilot study because it's like a thousand dollars for the software license oh, per yeah. seat. It's like seventeen hundred now for the software license, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then That's the really devices.
1: Well
2: <laughs> and then the devices are you know a couple hundred dollars each. Yeah, up to 300 now for the chest
1: strap plus the, the wrist monitor whatever straps you need to put it onto a person. Yeah. Right.
2: And, <laughs> and as I'm sure you guys know, the way our grant stuff works, you have to have preliminary data to get money to do your collection. And there was just no way I could get enough funding to get the ACTI whatever's Um, for preliminary data. (laughs) So I pitched using the Fitbit and there was enough literature out there that said it's pretty accurate for these things. And it's one of the most accurate, the Fitbit one that I use. So the one I used is one that goes on the trunk, not on a wrist, because most wrist worn devices are not quite as accurate for whole body physical activity because like I'm talking with my hands now and it would capture all of that, even though I'm standing still. So, yeah, that's why I use the Fitbit. I could afford it. There's a developers API where you can essentially apply to Fitbit to get permission to get more detailed data than the mm-hmm. interface consumers get.
1: Oh, that's fantastic.
2: And so I applied for that and now I have technically I have an app in for Fitbit. <laughs> So I can pull my own data down from their servers, which is one of the benefits of coming out of an engineering program and turning to anthropology. I was like, I can figure out the programming. <laughs> it might wow. not be clean, it might not be that pretty, but I, I can do it. Yeah. And I published code for pulling the data from Fitbit just because if other people would like to use yeah. something similar, especially yeah. for smaller projects or preliminary research, a 100 or $200 a device is a lot easier to do. Yeah.
0: I am a strong advocate of that kind of flexibility because where CARA does human energetics, has the budget for the high-end stuff, I don't specialize in it. If I bought a bunch of stuff like that, I would use it once. So for collecting pilot data, for collecting student data, for entering the field. In other words, I think we need more methods for collecting data rather than just being one with a proprietary license at a high cost to make the field and data collection accessible for more students. So kudos, thank you for publishing your code. That's really helpful.
1: And we'll be sure to put the link up in the show notes because that'll be something I think highly valuable to a lot of people listening.
2: It's actually cited in my paper. So there's a link to Uh, the DOI where it's put on Zenodo and that links I think back to GitHub. Fantastic.
1: All the data has been collected at this point, and you're in the phase of analysis and writing up. So can you give us any conclusions right now that won't like ruin things for you in any way?
2: <laughs> um, I can give you some broad ideas of what's going into my chapters, I guess. Yeah, so, that sounds great. The chapter that I'm currently, hopefully about to send to my full, full committee, is looking at estrogen exposure, bone phenotype, so frame size and bone density in the Polish women. And we also work with Polish American women in the United States to compare. And thinking about, because age of menarche is considered to be a risk factor for osteoporosis later in life. So later age at menarche or your first period in the United States and in other very industrialized populations is associated with higher likelihood of osteoporosis later in life. So thinking about things like menarche and pregnancy and breastfeeding that affect your estrogen throughout your life and examining whether those seem to affect bone density in this population that's pretty physically active that uses their body a lot of the time. I also am looking at bone turnover with my hmm. research. So, uh, looking at the effects of physical activity and estrogen currently on bone formation and bone resorption.
1: How do you measure that, the bone turnover?
2: I'm looking at deoxyparadenoline, which is a marker for bone resorption, uh, hmm. which is collected from urine. Okay. And bone alkaline phosphatase, which you have to get from a blood draw. Uh,
1: So you're just about finishing up. I guess maybe two more questions.
2: One, what's in the future for you? And then we'll get to the fun question. (laughs) So in the future, I would really like to keep working in research. I need a postdoc or a job somewhere, somehow. (laughs) But I... I have also gotten really interested in thinking about rural health and physical activity in that sense, and what it would look like to do not the same study, but to consider what physical activity and rural living is like in women in the U.S. So that's something that I've been reading about and thinking about a lot, because we just don't really have a lot of stuff on what normal women are doing, as I'm sure you know, a lot of anthropologists and, uh, and human biologists know there's just a huge gaping holes in a lot of what we know about normal people.
0: True that. <laughs> well, in the time that you're finishing your dissertation, we'll, we'll come full circle. You came into this program because of the interest you had in family work balance. As you are doing all this work, how do you maintain balance? What do you do for fun?
2: Yeah, so you sent the question in advance, (laughs) and I thought about it way too hard. (laughs) I realized when I was overthinking this question that what I really like depends on the season a lot, because I hate the cold, but I love gardening, and here in Illinois, it's really not a long gardening season. Mm. Um, So in the summer, I love to garden and spend time outside and play with the dog in the yard, um, stuff like that. But I also have taken dance classes here locally and I realized what I really like is activities that are tactile or um, physical that require building up a like technical skill set and then like executing the thing. So I like in the winter, I like making soup, which sounds dumb, but it's like I have like a basic process for making soup and it's very relaxing to me in the same way that planting a garden and planting it is I love cooking. Yeah. It is a fun activity. I'm down (laughs) with
0: that. Kara and I are both cooks. I also garden. We totally feel you.
2: So, Katie, how can people get a hold of you if they want to hear more about your work? I am very active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is resourcefulsqrl, which most people say as resourceful squirrel. And I can be reached by email at kmlee 6 lee at illinois.edu.
0: I'm Chris. I'm one of the co-hosts for the show. You can find me at Chris underscore L Y. And
2: I'm Sarah, You can find me
0: at Tara. Hockenau. And Amy, thank you for being on the sausage of science. And we'll be back in two weeks.